Well, like many other things in our lives, the Bible has much to say about our clothing. Clothing played an important role in major Bible events. Uh, Consider Adam and Eve for a moment. They wore fig leaves, then animal skins. If you think about that a little more deeply, in a perfect world, there was no clothing. Joseph literally boasted of his multicolored clothing. David refused the king's clothing. After all, it simply would not suit for his fight against Goliath. Saul dressed like a woman to visit a witch. John the Baptist preferred camel's hair. And our Lord's clothing was divided among his executioners. But the Bible also speaks of clothing in spiritual terms. The book of Isaiah, for example, salvation is described as a garment. It's described as a robe. Isaiah also notes that to attempt to earn it, well, those works are like filthy rags. Well, this morning, Peter is going to call us to put off one set of clothing and to put on another set of clothing. After all, we've learned about this new birth we've experienced in Jesus Christ. New birth means new life. In 1 Peter chapter 1, we learned of our new identity as a result of this birth. And Peter gave us then new commands. Be holy, fear God, fervently love each other. Now this last command, this command to fervently love... Well, we learn that this is possible for us to do because gospel faith has changed us. It's purified our hearts, making it possible. We also learn that the seed of our faith, well, it's born out of a living, enduring Word of God. But I think if we're honest, we also recognize that this love for others is sometimes difficult to do. It's not always present to say nothing of a fervent love for others. And we're going to learn this morning that where there is a lack of love, there is a presence of sin. In fact, in today's passage, Peter will tell us what these sins are and then what to do about them. We're going to learn that nothing ought to interfere with our fervent love for one another. We'll learn to put things off so we can put things on. This morning, we're going to take two steps as children of the new birth, and our focus will be on 1 Peter chapter 2. It's the first three verses. I do want to begin by reading a few verses back, back into chapter 1. That should help set the context and give us some background. We'll begin reading in chapter 1, verse 22. Peter writes that since you have an obedience to the truth, purified your hearts for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. For you have been born again. Not of seed, which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, through the living and enduring Word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls off, but the Word of the Lord endures forever. Therefore, putting aside all malice, and all deceit, and hypocrisy, 
and envy and all slander, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. I want to begin this morning with step number one, this idea of putting off. We are to cast off the sins that kill love. Cast off the sins that kill love. But before we get to that, Peter doesn't want us to digest this concept, at least not right away. Because what's the first word of verse 1? What does he want us to do as you read that word? The word is therefore, some of your Bibles say so or so then, but the word calls us to look back, to consider what he wrote before. What did he just say? And as a result of what he's written, he'll then go on and say, do this. Peter points us back to verses 22 through 25. And we need to be careful here not to get too hung up on the change of chapter. We're now in chapter 2. You need to know that chapters and Bible verses, they're not in the original Scripture when it was written. Now, they're a huge help to us. I mean, just imagine not having them for a moment. But they can also cause unnecessary breaks in the flow of an author's argument or in the flow of his writing. In Peter's mind, he just finished writing verse 25. There's no new chapter. There's no new verse. It's the next sentence. Therefore, putting aside. And while we're on this topic, it's worth noting this whole Bible system of chapters and verses. It came about in the early 1200s. So for that many years, as much as they had a text, they didn't have verses and chapters. A man named Stephen Langton created it. As I read the history of it, it was desperately needed. You can imagine how that would help with communication. But our verse numbering, what we have in our Bibles, this came later, the 1550s. It came through a man named Robert S. Teen. The story's told that he took a trip from from Paris to Lyons. This is in the nation of France. And on the way, in the rain, on horseback, he's making his verse divisions. Every time he... The horse took a step, he marked a verse. Every time his horse stumbled, he marked a chapter. Now, it's a humorous story, and I would say, Holly, no, not really. (laughs) It's probably untrue, but someone was attempting to capture the sense of what can often feel like awkward chapter and verse divisions. Sometimes our chapter divisions don't make sense. They can break up the flow of a verse or the flow of a thought. And perhaps you've encountered this as you've read your Bible and you've wondered, why did they begin a new chapter here? One New Testament professor writes it this way, the first step in interpretation is to ignore the modern chapters and verses, which we will now do. Because the living word of God, as a theme, it connects what came before at the end of chapter 1 and what comes now at the beginning of chapter 2. In verses 22 and 23, this is chapter 1, our new birth by the seed of this word, it has purified our souls for fervent love. That was the essence of our talk last week. Now, in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, we're going to put off those old sins, those sins which stifle fervent love. 
We're going to grow by this word which fosters and waters it. So verses 24 and 25 then, they function in a way like a link in a chain. It's connecting these thoughts. And Peter writes, in light of this word, this word of God, it was preached to you, you received it, therefore put off your sin. Set aside your sin. Take it off, he says. Rid yourselves. Remove it. Other authors in the time in which Peter wrote use this word to describe the taking off of clothing, or the setting aside of a set of clothes. And if I could for a minute to press the imagery that Peter uses, he's saying here, don't simply cover up some stain on your clothes. Don't throw a sweater or a coat over it. He's saying, grab that clothing. Don't spray the stains. Don't launder it. Take them out back. Douse them in gasoline and burn them. Put on new clothes, he says. Brand new clothes. Clothes unlike the old clothes. Clothes cut from different cloth. That's pressing his imagery further, but I believe it falls in line with what he calls for. Living in newness of life, putting off sin, putting on purity, holiness, fervent love. Now this putting off, it works with the putting on. That's implied in verse 2. Some Bible translations translate putting off as a command. It says put off. It's going to work very closely with the, 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 the main command, which is long for. It's the one command of our text this morning. So whatever your Bible version is this morning, the, the action at the beginning of verse 1 should really end in ing. Putting, ridding, laying. And what this does is it communicates that the putting off is working with the main verb, but it goes before it. It precedes it. In other words... We need to make a break with our former life. We need to break, make a break with these sins of verse 1 if we're going to obey this passage. And we're going to see in a moment that when we fail to put off, it's very difficult to put on. These things are working together, putting off as we're putting on, or putting off preceding putting on. And Peter calls us, in summary, to put off sin. That's the essence of verse 1. Verse 1, you notice, contains a sin list. There are similar lists like this in the New Testament. Sometimes they're called a vice list. These elements are going to remind us here that God doesn't merely call you and I to, to some better way of living. God calls us to abandon very specific sins that beset our lives. Peter lists five of them. Sins of attitude, sins of speech. In some ways, these sins, they, they tend to work together. For example, envy is going to work its way out in slander. Hypocrisy supports the work of deceit and, and so on. There's other examples, other links in these, in these sins. And we should note as well that Peter's not trying to list every sin here every possible sin that might hinder a fervent love for your brother or sister. And I think he may be summarizing as well. In other words, in the original language, three of these sins are plural, and three times he uses the word all to describe them. 
Literally, the translation goes, putting away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisies, plural, and envies and all slanders. Now, for whatever reason, I don't know why, for whatever reason, he uses the word all in some places here and and makes a plural out of some of these sins. I think we get the point. Peter tells us, stop doing these things. They're going to stifle the fervent love that we must maintain for one another. Malice is the first of the list. It's ill will. It'd be a a vicious attitude towards someone else, mean-spirited. J. Vernon McGee calls it a congealed anger. The word is actually pretty broad in the original language. It refers to just a general wickedness. This is the predicted trouble that daily you and I encounter. Jesus said each day has enough trouble of its own, same word. But it gets specific with the translation here because of the context. That's why it appears as malice. Our judicial system illustrates just how evil this is. Uh, the punishment for a deed committed in malice in our judicial system, the, the penalty is, is, is increased if it can be proved it was done in malice. The crime committed with malice, it gets a longer prison sentence. Even the secular judicial system recognizes it's evil. We mentioned it's an attitude, it's an intent. It may or may not be visible, but presumably one could keep it hidden, though that's not good for the soul, In Psalm 66, verse 18, David wrote, If I had been aware of malice in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. Malice toward our fellow believers, it makes our prayers ineffective. And it destroys our ability to love one another. Deceit is the second sin which Peter lists. This would be a trickery or a treachery. Oftentimes, it's a a deliberate dishonesty. Someone is trying to seek something or to increase gain by deceiving others. A related word has to do with baiting a trap or setting a snare. Jacob serves as an illustration of this. When your nickname is Deceiver, by a brother who makes you run away because he's ready to kill you, you definitely have a talent for shady dealings. The man had a talent for deception. He stole Esau's blessing. He pretended to be him. He deceived his brother. He deceived his father. Hypocrisy is to create an impression that is at odds with the true purpose. In the world in which Peter lived, it was to be a play actor or to fill a role on stage. And we know this frequently from Jesus' ministry. He often denounced religious leaders for this. You hypocrites, he says, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. In other words, what is done on the outside does not match the inside. Envy resents someone else's advantage. Maybe it wants what someone else has. Maybe it resents them for having it. Envy is the attitude of Saul toward David. As David's popularity grew, he slayed the giant. Saul's envy grew. 
They were coming home when David returned from striking down the Philistine. The women came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines and songs of joy and instruments. How Saul's heart sailed. All of these women coming out to praise his deeds. The next verse, and the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down, struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. That was not the plan. Saul envied David. Finally, slander is evil speaking. Defamation, it's disparaging someone else. It's often done behind someone else's back. This can get packaged in all kinds of ways. Again, the translation is all slanders, innuendo, lies, exaggerated statements, accusations, false charges, criticisms. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 18 states that he who spreads slander is a fool. Moses sent out 12 spies into the land of Canaan. And upon returning, 10 of them, quote, made all the congregation grumble against Moses by bringing out a bad report concerning the land. Thanks a lot, guys. They slandered Moses and they caused division among his people. These sins, seemingly small, insignificant, minor. I mean, after all, we're not talking about murder or bank robbery here. I mean, these sins are still serious in the eyes of God. And they become a problem because they infect our hearts and they infect the fervent love that we ought to share for one another. And if they're nurtured, if they're practiced, they're going to grow and they're going to undermine and fracture our love. From time to time, I see some news article written about exotic pet owners. They adopt these cute, cuddly little animals. They take them home. They're adorable. They're furry. People feed them and feed them some more and more and more day after day. There's the family who watch their cute Tibetan Mastiff reach 250 pounds. Turns out it was an Asiatic black bear. There's the cute but sickly dog who wandered on the front porch in Texas. In great compassion, he was brought inside and nursed back to health, turning out to be a coyote. <laughs> There's that precious pair of kittens with blue eyes and soft fur. And playing with them, these little rascals had a strong bite. Turns out they were bobcats. You see, these dangerous animals, they start off cute. And they make people feel good. Who would imagine that such a cute, innocent little thing could turn out to be so dangerous and harmful. And I think it's easy for us to criticize, perhaps, these people. But do not these sins of verse 1 do the same among us, where they start off small and insignificant, and no one is, quote, hurt by them, but left unchecked, nurtured and fed, they grow. 
And they begin to occupy portions of our heart that we never intended them to grow into. And they begin to undermine a fervent love that we have for one another. Sometimes, maybe not outwardly, but we know in our hearts as we see that person, we don't love them. Peter says, put off that set of clothes. Take them out back and burn them. And he's going to call us here in just a moment to put on a different set of clothes. If you think about what these sins do, walking through them, and how they work together, malice is going to ruin fellowship. Rather than serving one another, deceit is going to use people. Envy is going to steal the focus that we ought to have on God's people. It puts it on their stuff, on their possessions, on their status. Slander is going to poison your reputation. And God, well, God sees hypocrisy, and there's no blessing in that. That might even be one of the biggest problems with this list, is what happens to our relationship with God when we harbor sin. 1 John chapter 4, verse 20, the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And if we're going to engage in malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander, our relationship with the Lord, it's not going to be right. And it might feel right. It might feel okay. I mean, after all, we're not laying on the deathbed of affliction. But if our relationship with Christians are broken, our relationship with God is broken. And to believe otherwise is delusion. That's called self-made religion. And creating religion apart from God's truth is an unwise idea. We talked about that in the book of Judges last night with the men. Because God's word says that if we love our fellow Christians, we love God. And if we don't love our fellow Christians, we don't love God. What do we need to put off this morning as we look across this list? Maybe as you sit where you are and you say a quick prayer inviting God to speak to your heart, what is it in this list, Lord, that I need to put off? What is hindering me from loving your people and thus loving you? Peter says, cast off these sins that kill love. We would call this the put off step of our passage this morning. And Peter's going to call us then to a second step. It's the put on, the put on step. He says, cast off the sins that kill love. And secondly, consume the truth that causes growth. Consume the truth that causes growth. Verse 2, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. I love this. In light of that sinister, nasty, ugly stuff in verse 1. What does Peter do? He holds up a baby. It's brilliant. I mean, just think about this. Babies don't harbor anger. In fact, they forget things pretty quickly. Babies don't deceive you. They are very honest about what they want. Babies don't pretend to be something they're not. We might say they wear their emotions on their onesies. <laughs> babies don't envy other babies, and babies don't slander. In fact, they've never spoken one impure word. So I want to look at verses 2 and 3 with you, and I want to look at these verses through five major movements. I want you to see first the mandate. This is the, the big command. This is the billboard of our passage this morning. Long for the pure milk of the word. That's an odd command, isn't it? 
Some versions will read, desire the milk of the word, or crave the milk of the word. Concerning the Bible, we might expect Peter to write something here. Um, Read the word, study the word, obey the word. Other passages do that, to be sure. But here the command is to long for the scriptures. The Greek word implies an intense craving. When the Hebrew of verse, or, or Psalm 42, verse 1, when that was brought over into the Greek language, the same word was used as the deer pants for the water brooks. So my soul pants for you, O God. That is the picture behind this word longing. I will see then in a moment why a baby is a fitting image for this. But how are we supposed to do this? I mean, when it comes to desires, don't they just happen to us? Aren't you and I people who have really no control? We're just going about life and we're more recipients of desires than we are active participants. Is that what the Bible teaches us? Well, no, at least in part, it's not completely true. The the Bible does speak to desires. And it begins with prayer. David prayed in Psalm 51, verse 10, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. David's saying, Change my desires, Lord. You know my heart when I stand on the roof and I look around. Change my heart, Lord. It also begins with position, and this flows right out of David's problem. What position or what places do you put yourself in through the week? In Psalm 63, David wrote, O God, you are my God, I shall seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you, my flesh yearns for you, in a dry and weary land where there is no water. David, how did you attain these desires? What did you do that fostered this? The next verse, I have seen you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory. David put himself in places to behold God, and to focus his mind and his eyes upon God. If we could flip it around, if you stay away from this place, and you stay away from the people of God and the things of God, you're not going to form desires for God or for his word. Thirdly, it begins with this passage, this whole question of desires. I think there's some clues in our passage as well. I mean, notice in verses 22 and 23, this is back in chapter 1, the purification of our hearts, it began with a new birth. And verses 23 through 25 attach that power, the power of the seed, to that birth in the Scriptures. To say it this way, John Piper said, quote, if the Word of God is powerful enough to create new Christians through new birth, then the Word of God is powerful enough to create desire in languishing Christian souls. In summary, he's pointing to the power of the Word of God to bring a change in our hearts. And this command here points us to the very source of healthy desires. Using the imagery again of the infant, Peter writes, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the Word. Long for that which both satisfies your soul and feeds your soul. Notice the means for this. We grow through God's potent word. 
Throughout the Bible, the authors of Scripture were quite colorful in their descriptions of Scripture or the Word of God. And as I read a few of these, just consider for a moment what they're communicating about God's Word. Elsewhere in the Bible, the Word of God is a sword, a mirror, a lamp, a hammer. Elsewhere in the Bible, the Word of God is like silver, like fire, like rain. In our passage, the Word of God is like imperishable seed and pure spiritual milk. Back in chapter 1, verse 23, Scripture is imperishable seed. You were born again by this seed. And notice in verse 24, Peter's going to go back in the Old Testament. He's going to quote from Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 40. In Isaiah chapter 40, Isaiah is giving words of comfort to the people of God. And at one day, the mighty nation of Babylon, they're going to come in and take God's people out of their land. And the captives are going to arrive in Babylon. And they're going to look around at these wealthy cities and these enormous walls, the whole time marched by a powerful army. It looks like Babylon is going to live and endure forever. But Peter says, no. All flesh is like grass. Grass withers. Peter's audience could identify with this. As Christians, they're bucking the culture. They're aliens in a foreign land. In fact, you may feel that way this morning. You may read the news. It appears as though the bigger the fool, the more power he has. It's almost as though you need to have some kind of resume of evil as a prerequisite to hold power in this country. But Peter says, do not dismay. The flower falls off. In contrast, he says all this to speak to the word. The word of the Lord endures forever. It's the seed once planted. It's the seed that doesn't die. It is living. It is enduring. It's the seed of your new birth. He tells us to consume this truth that causes growth. In chapter 2, verse 2, Scripture is pure spiritual milk. I want to read that verse again with just a bit of a better translation than mine. It says, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up to salvation. Now notice in that translation, the term word or word of God isn't present at all. So how do we know that Peter's writing about the Word of God? What makes this word milk equivalent to the Scriptures? Well, we know on one hand, translators have made that decision. That's why my Bible version reads pure milk of the Word. We know as well that the entire context, again, let's pull those chapter numbers out of here. We know the context is word-heavy. And verses 23 through 25 just discussed it. We learned that it generates life, that the Word is living and that this milk is well, this milk is pure. Psalm 12, verse 6, the words of the Lord are pure words. Psalm 19, verse 8, the commandment of the Lord is pure. Psalm 119, verse 140, your words are very pure. There's a theme here. And this milk as well, notice it is longed for. Again, to borrow from the Psalms, my eyes fail with longing for your word. I opened my mouth wide and panted, for I longed for your commandments. This milk is the word of God. 
And it's a pure spiritual milk. That scripture is described as pure and as spiritual. The word spiritual here means simply according to reason. In other words, it conforms to reality. This word is used one other place in the New Testament. It's used by Paul. It's Romans 12. I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And in that verse, it's chapter 12, verse 1 of Romans, the, the, the book changes. It's on a hinge and it moves in a different direction. He now begins to unpack all the implications of doctrine, of truth, and says, here's what you must do. And what Paul does in that verse essentially tells you and I to act as you are. Be who you are to be. And that's exactly what Peter does here as well. We are newborns. We are born again. And Peter tells us to be who you are. Spiritual, conformed to reality. Because our reality is listed out throughout chapter 1. Our new identity in Jesus Christ. He also writes about Scripture being pure. Unadulterated undiluted. Again, going back to this notion of the infant, before formula was ever invented, infants nursed off of breast milk, and almost exclusively. And if a mother in the days of Peter couldn't find a nurse, she found a wet nurse. And in Peter's day, this is very interesting, pure feeding was extremely important to people. Because in Peter's time, it was believed that a child's moral character was formed by the person supplying the milk. Moral significance, in other words, was attached to the person who provided the nursing. So if you needed to go out and find a wet nurse, you wanted to get the right person because your child's future depended on it. You needed a morally pure and righteous source, which helps inform what Peter writes about when he says pure milk. Morally pure. And so it is with the Word of God. It is precisely what we need. It nourishes our soul. It causes growth. And look at the model here, thirdly, our third movement, this model that Peter uses to describe his thought. We look to the cradle for the model of craving. And this makes sense in a way. Back in chapter 1, verse 23, we learned we are born again. We are newborns in a sense. But Peter isn't saying here either that the recipients of this word are all brand new Christians. That's not what he's saying. He also isn't saying that the people who read this and need this, they are people who are spiritually immature. He's not saying that. Now, there are places in the Bible that use milk and nursing and babies that way. Um, Hebrews, uh, 1 Corinthians, they both refer to spiritual immaturity as people who are infants, but that's not what Peter's doing here. And we don't want to impart the meaning upon this passage. Instead, what Peter says is that you and I, regardless of where we are in our growth, new Christian, a Christian of many decades, mature, immature, he says all of us ought to crave God's word as infants crave milk. And let me tell you, babies are very good at craving milk. I called them in my notes tiny professionals at making cravings known. It's almost as though time stands still. At 2 a.m., 
If they're craving milk, you've never met anyone else more awake. Babies redefine perseverance. When they're craving milk, they let it be known until that craving is fulfilled. They don't quit. Infants do what they need to do to get fed. Namely, cry really loud. When a spectrum, a crying baby registers at 110 decibels, that's five more than a snowblower. (laughs) And when craving, babies need their mom. On those unfortunate occasions where it's me and the baby at home and Heather's running late, feeding time has come and gone, I am a sympathetic figure. I'm a sorry sight. Because I could only imagine as the door is open, it is me standing there holding this crying baby, 105 decibels, probably earplugs still in my ears, sweating profusely. There's toys strewn everywhere in the room. All my attempts to appease the child have not worked. The baby's crying. I'm crying. But do you see the power of the imagery that Peter's using here? He wants us to look to the picture of the baby craving and say, look, believe, that must be you for God's word. And he puts in here also this this mission. There's something to this. There is a reason or a mission, the purpose for our growth. We're to put on this craving because we put off those sins which hinder love. And if we practice verse 1, we discuss this, we can't love and we can't grow. They're going to stunt our growth. Instead, instead of that, craving the Word will lead to growth. Craving the Word will lead to reading and studying and meditating. In a way, it's more broad, but it leads to good habits and good practice. And it seems to me that it's not uncommon to treat this concept, this whole idea of time in the Word, as something that's optional. Oh, you know, getting into the Bible, that's for those super spiritual Christians. Or or I get into my Bible on Sundays, I get my my Bible from church. Or I believe the Bible, I just don't have a lot of time. I don't want you to miss what Peter's laying down here. Spiritual growth is part of our salvation. One purpose of the milk here is to grow you for that final day. And already in Peter, we've learned about different tenses of salvation, how the Bible speaks of salvation in different ways, past, present, future. In chapter 1, verse 3, we were chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. That's in the past, speaking of salvation. In chapter 1, verse 9, we're obtaining this salvation of our souls. That's in the present tense. That's ongoing. It's happening right now. But in chapter 1, verse 5, we also learn of a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. There is a future aspect to it. And in the present, Peter says, we are to be drinking from the Word of God in light of what is coming in the future. You are to long for the pure milk of the Word, he says, so that by it you may grow into salvation, or in salvation, or for salvation. One commentator has said it this way, salvation is something toward which we are moving, not something for which we are merely waiting. And I thought that was so helpful. 
because we cannot think of some gospel prayer in the past as the end of it all. That's the beginning. And there is an ongoing aspect. We are walking towards the kingdom. We are confident because our faith is in Jesus. But because it is, things are changing. And we are nourishing ourselves on the word of God to prepare for that day. There's a marker to this as well. Lastly, not everyone's going to receive this. This is really for those who have met God. Peter continues the imagery of the newborn as he concludes this verse. If, he says, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. And here he's quoting from Psalm chapter 34. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good, verse 8. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. You see, a Christian has had an encounter with the living God. It's been an experience. You've tasted the goodness of God. And what Peter doesn't want you to do is take this passage and just check it off as a box. He says, true Christians know God. That has placed an unforgettable mark on their soul, and and they don't want to lose that. They're not trying to, to shake it, and they don't want to. He's saying, if you've tasted it, come and drink more. So as we close this morning, I need to ask you, are you thirsty? Are you thirsty for the Word of God? There's a story told of a man named Chaz Powell. He was a gifted expedition guide, and he took a two-month hiking trip. He went along the Zambezi River. The Zambezi River is in Africa. At one point, he encountered unexpected and very rough terrain. And as he continued to hike, he found himself atop a cliff, almost boxed in and and covered by thorns with no path in sight. And he's doing this in mid-August where temperatures reach up to 120 degrees. And he writes of this journey, I can't describe how thirsty I was. By this point, I was starting to feel really ill. Bad things are happening. His body didn't have what it needed. He began to get sick. So he had to make a decision. Initially, he used his radio to SOS to call in for help. But he realized that he might be dead by then. So he determined to climb down the cliff. Now we should note that dehydration is going to impact how the brain functions. Dehydration disrupts our mood. Dehydration builds up toxins in the body. Dehydration hinders our ability to think clearly and we become less vigilant as a result. Now Powell made it to the river that day. He was able to hydrate and cool his body back down. He's able to conclude his journey. But his journey here, I believe it informs ours. For the contemporary Christian, you too hike in a foreign land. This is a land filled with deception, with hardship, with fiery, hot trials. This is a land filled with isolation and thorny days. And if you plan on succeeding... You need to drink deeply from the Word of God. And if you don't, you will not be able to think clearly. You won't have the mind of Christ throughout the scenarios and situations of your day. You won't be vigilant. The elements of this world will prey upon you. And you won't live a spiritually healthy life. Toxins will build up in your body, spiritually speaking. 
No, I don't want that for me. And I don't want that for you. I want to thirst the way Powell thirsted for water. I want to thirst for the word the way he thirsted for water. What about you? You see, a regular intake of the word of God, this isn't just a good idea. This is absolutely necessary. Long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you can grow into salvation. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, I pray that you would fan the flame of desires in our hearts, that you would grant us a grace to desire your word, to read it and to love it, to see the practical use in our lives. I pray, Father, that your people would feed on it and that you would meet them as they drink. And I pray as we struggle to understand it at times, to see its relevance, to wonder how it applies, that we would not grow faint, that we would not give up, but you would meet us there too, perhaps more so, to give us a perseverance and that you would fuel our thirst, that we would drink over and over again. Lord, thank you for the gift of your word. Forgive us for not seeing its value and forgetting its benefit, but thank you for loving us and for sharing who you are with us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.